Hi, I'm Dr. Don Welch, licensed marriage and family therapist, and welcome to the My Therapist Says podcast, where I moderate discussions between various relationship experts from medical doctors to licensed mental health professionals to enrich relationship skills and communication. This podcast seeks to bring healing and hope to what matters most in our lives, our relationships. If you would like even more content or to speak with a therapist, you can visit us at www.enrichingrelationships.org. Thank you and enjoy. We welcome you to another My Therapist Says. It's an experience like having a... Uh, actually a therapist in your living room because you're going to be able to ask some questions directly to the this panel and so we look forward to that tonight everyone have a three by five card does you have a three by five card hold that up if you have that I want to make sure that everyone has one thank you on that three by five card you may write any question that you would like it will be transported to me up front I'll moderate the evening we'll be able to hopefully get to most if not all of the questions this evening on this very important topic on addictive behaviors and I know tonight, when you do an addictive behaviors seminar, uh, it actually begins to diminish because a lot of people think, well, I don't have any addiction, so I, I, I'm not sure I want to go to that. Or if I go, someone will think, I have an addictive behavior because I showed up. But that's not the case tonight. When you think about it, many of us have people within our, our sphere of influence who have addictive behaviors. And if you think of somebody just, uh, say, working 70 or 80 or 90 hours a week, um, not because they have to, but maybe because they like to, that could be in that camp. We oftentimes don't think of that. There are some rather severe addictive behaviors, of course, that one can be decimating to families as well. But as we work tonight, we have already prayed and we, we anticipate God's Spirit to be with us. Just want to mention that all of these My Therapist Says presentations may be located on our website, theskylinechurch.org. If you have a friend or loved one, that may be interested in this topic. They were not able to be here this evening. All you'd need to do is give them our website, uh, go to the counseling area. All of our previous ones, now we have, I believe, over 40 of them that have been archived on various topics. You may peruse that and, and, and look, look through the previous presentations for topics. I'm always excited to introduce our panel members because when I look at these panel members and I begin to pray as we did this evening again, I'm just reminded of the amount of work and effort it takes uh, to reach the level of expertise that we have on this uh, in this panel this evening and on, on the front of the, the church here today. And so I'm thrilled to introduce our, our panel members. But as we, we meet together, I just pray that this is going to be enriching to you, that it would not only help you as a person, but perhaps your life and someone in your sphere of influence may be impacted by God's presence with us this night. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to do a very brief introduction and move right into our evening. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much for the fact that you love us with agape love, and you care so deeply about every person. Every person is unique, and in your sight, everyone is precious, and we thank you for that this evening. Bless our meeting here tonight on a very, very 
uh, difficult topic, to say the least, uh, addictive be behaviors. And I pray, Father, as we begin to discuss this, there's interaction between the panel and the audience this evening, that we would sense your presence most of all. That's what we pray for. We pray that if we do experience your presence in a beautiful way this evening, we will all leave changed because of your great truth that sets us free. So thank you for that. We bless you. We honor you this evening. And we will give you praise throughout the evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'd like to introduce um, our panel members. And actually, Yolanda Gork, she is ready to present. She's going to be giving our presentation. All of these uh, presenters' names and their bios are up on the PowerPoint screen. Gary Cundiff is to my left, Pam Lachey, and Dr. Diana Shorstrom all of which have been panel members here on numbers of occasions. All of, all of these here tonight have, have joined us, and I really appreciate it. So without any further introductions, Yolanda, if you would lead us into this uh, presentation. Thank you, Don. Hi, everyone. How are you? Thanks for coming in. I know this is a, a change of a season here, and um, I, I also felt that some people wouldn't come because they thought, oh, no. Now they'll find out that I have an addiction or, or they'll tell me to stop and there's nothing for me to stop. The title of tonight is Getting Help. And I thought, you know, people are not going to get help unless they, they believe that they need it. So the first step in getting help for anything is stepping out of denial and knowing that you need help. So you may know someone, as I make my presentation, that you're thinking of. And... Um, I also wanted to give you an idea of what someone might be struggling with, with an addiction and how that might happen. Because if you've never dealt with an addiction, I haven't, but I've counseled people who have, it's hard to know how did they get addicted and why can't they stop. Sometimes I think it's hard for people in the church to come forward for help. You have a wonderful ministry here called Celebrate Recovery. and. I'm wondering how many people would like to go, but they feel there's a stigma in the church, so they just would rather not go, not be identified. The person I'm going to read has no name, but she's 22 to 25 years age. She says her title of her story is Reason to Live. She says, I'm addiction-free for now, but not for long if I don't learn how to live normally. Looking back, I realized that I was really happy until the age of 10. I did have some pretty dysfunctional childhood moments, but there were times when I was happy, things were going well, and it felt good to be alive. Since I was 10, I have been depressed. I do not live anymore. I just function, cope, and survive. Honestly, there's nothing in this world that I enjoy except for food. It calms me, soothes me, brings me comfort. I am a food addict, if ever there was one. Since I was 10, I developed an eating disorder. I realized that I could just not stop eating. I always had to be chewing something. I started struggling with my weight and went through bulimia, then anorexia, and finally all the way to obesity. Last year, my doctor put me on a stimulant weight loss medication, and I loved it. Not only did it kill my appetite, but it gave me energy and euphoria. I fell in love with the medication. I never abused it, I didn't take it every day, but it became my new addiction. I was looking forward to taking it and just feeling high for a couple of hours. I'm on a new non-stimulant medication now, and it does the job. 
I'm not hungry and I can function, go to work, but my life is empty. There's nothing really that brings me joy. I just make it through the day and I'm glad when it's time to go to bed. What else am I addicted to? I guess achievement and success, but those are flimsy friends. But to pursue achievement and success, I need something to get me going. Something like food or that medication. I've basically been depressed all my life. I am my own worst enemy. I have a bunch of psychological problems. I'm going through a difficult time in my life, but who isn't? And I don't know how to live. If addiction is the only thing that fuels me, and I don't have any other way of coping with my problems, I will always be addicted to something. And here she writes, pills, food, drinking, cutting, shopping. I see it clearly now, and I'm going to learn how to live. I'm going to see my therapist next week, even though I can barely afford it. But I'm in serious trouble, and I need help. I am not a drug and alcohol counselor. I am a marriage and family therapist. However, I do see people who struggle with addictions, and what I help them with is the core issues that fuel the need to have an addiction that calms them, soothes them, comforts them, and brings them a euphoria or a high. The best scenario is when someone comes to see me and they're also going to a 12-step group such as Celebrate Recovery. Those groups and drug and alcohol counselors do recovery work. Therapists do healing work. And I, yes, getting help for addiction, this is what we do. We can help work through grief and loss issues. Grief and loss is my specialty, one of my specialties. It's not only loss for people who have died in your life, but dreams that have died, relationships that are broken, hopes that have died. So these are some of the things that I can do in my expertise as a therapist, but I am not a drug and alcohol counselor. Does that make sense? So when you know someone is in a 12-step group and they are there and they're not really sure if they could use a therapist. In therapy, all of us can help people deal with the root issues that fuel that need for the addiction or the gambling or the eating or whatever it is. For this lady, she says she's been depressed. She has eating addictions, food addictions, probably some issues with self-esteem. And she admits that she doesn't have any other way of coping so in therapy, we can teach her better ways to cope with stresses so she doesn't relapse. That's one thing I wanted to share at the beginning. Now, it's, it makes sense to me that if you want to know if you need help, you ought to know what an addiction is. So I have three definitions here. I like the first one. When you can't function without something, it's an addiction. If you came with someone you know, could you ask them, what is it like to be around you without that first cup of coffee in the morning? <laughs> or we, uh, hey, oh, oh, I'm already touching a sensitive issue. Or when you come home or you wake up in the morning, who's the first person you talk to or what's the first thing that you do with your hands? Is it a computer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Do you know California is the first, first state to have a law that you cannot be texting and talking to someone while driving? That's pretty bad. So what I want to share is that this is a very good definition of an addiction. 
The next one goes a little bit deeper. It says it's a recurring compulsion. Something compels you to engage in a specific activity. Even though you know that it's bad for you, bad for the people who love you, and really makes a problem for your work life. So you're doing it knowingly that it causes problems. The third uh, definition is what is uh, specifically two components. Therapeutically or clinically, the definition of an addiction is it must have two ingredients. It must have tolerance. You must experience tolerance and well-defined physiological symptoms upon withdrawal. Tolerance simply means that when you start taking this substance or doing this behavior, such as shopaholic, gambling, or a drug, that you need more and more of it and you need it more frequently because it doesn't give you the same high or the same euphoria that it did with just a little bit and you need more. The second one is if you try to cut back just a little bit or you decide it's time to quit, you will go through withdrawal symptoms that will be so uncomfortable it may even make you change your mind that you need to stay on it because the withdrawal symptoms are too uncomfortable. So that is what we're dealing with when we talk about addiction. The next fact that I found out may surprise you. It surprised me. All addictions work in the same pathways in the brain to, to work through the pleasure pathways. But I didn't know that shopaholics have the same chemical uh, reactions in their brain as a heroin addict. That is amazing to me. So you may say, well, I've heard people say in therapy, well, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm not falling down drunk, for heaven's sake. I just gamble a little. I'm losing the house, but I'll get it back on the next time I go. And actually, in Southern California, gambling is very popular. It's very hard in the culture to recognize that it could be an addiction because it's everywhere. So that's the next point I want. Uh, the factors in addiction could be genetic, you could have a genetic predisposition for addiction. It's usually set off by an incident that really pushes your coping skills. You're not able to cope with it, and so you could have a genetic predisposition for addiction. Psychological. You can get addicted to the feelings, just like our friend said in the beginning. She felt great. She felt euphoria, and that's what she lived for because she didn't have a life. You can be addicted to that. Pharmacological speaks for itself. That's what the drug does. Cultural. Cultural was important because I feel that the culture in the church and the culture in our society may produce an environment where it could be hard to know if you are addicted to a behavior or a substance. Let's say in the church, I know I've talked to several ladies who give and give and give and give. Whatever the church wants or whatever they need, they have no life. And when they come home, their life belongs to their family. And so they have some issues there where they are attached to their need for significance. And it's very difficult because they're in a church and they feel that is their role. That's what they need to do. The other one in culture is that uh, I picked up the reader. We just moved here to San Diego in December. So I picked up the reader to find out what San Diego is like and how it's different than Los Angeles. 
And if you look at the reader, it seems like we all have problems with our bodies because they constantly <laughs> advertise we need change, we need a makeover, and they can help us. Even our eyelids have problems. Our hips, everything. There's just nothing that they can't fix. So we have a preoccupation there that may or may not be an obsession, but it's certainly something they want you to look at. There's also a show. My mother told me there was a show she was watching for uh, one of the... It's not a new addiction, but it is called hoarding. Ah. Hoarding is something that uh, uh, you understand what it is, but the source of it could be fear. Fear there's not enough. Fear there won't be enough for someone else, much less yourself. So you save everything, even if you don't have room for it. And in this economic downturn, what I'm seeing in therapy, I don't know if any of you have seen that too, is a lot of people are coming in complaining about anxiety, depression, and fears are surfacing. Some of their fears are not their own. Some of them is because they watch television and they, all they see and what they tune in is all the dire circumstances. The job rate is going down. This is happening. California is going bankrupt. And so some of their fears are being ignited by what they hear, but not, and it makes it very hard for them to be reality-based. So hoarding is something that is interesting that it's coming up. So that was gambling, hoarding, body issues. This lady that I read about, she definitely has some some body issues. The other, the next one says, how do you know if you have an addiction? I did the clinical definition. Addiction, ask yourself, is there a problem between me and God? Can I fulfill my responsibilities that I need to do in life? Am I hurting myself, my family, or my coworkers? And how am I doing on those goals and dreams that I've always talked about? One of the things that addiction serves is that it self-medicates or distracts us from pain. It's not always the case that an addiction source is from unresolved loss, but the people that I see in therapy have a lot of unresolved issues. So to distract themselves from that, they choose an addiction, and it works. So it's very hard for them to give it up if there isn't anything else that's going to help them. Okay. The other, uh, in this story with this lady, uh, what I wanted to emphasize was that our role as a therapist is to work with all of you as opposed to one issue. You are not an addiction to us in therapy we look at all of you. We look at the family of origin issues. We look at your childhood issues. All of these things so that together with the 12-step group or the Celebrate Recovery groups, you can come out a more whole person. And you also don't see yourself as a problem. You can see yourself as someone who's on the process of becoming a believer and knowing the value of grace. I don't think that we have to have an addiction to understand the power of grace. But I have a quote from uh, Dr. Dr. Gerald May. If you're interested in reading about the spiritual significance of addiction, I highly recommend this book. A friend of mine gave this book to me, and it's, it's more than what I can present now. But the quote that is in here is this. It's, um, he says, of... 
Let's see. The spiritual significance of addiction is not just that we lose freedom through attachment to things, or even that things so easily become our ultimate concerns. Of much more importance is that we try to fulfill our longing for God through objects of attachment. Goes on to explain how God wants to be our perfect lover, but instead we seek perfection in human relationships. I think he's hit the nail on the head in terms of the spiritual significance of addiction. I want to close with something that gives everyone hope. If you know someone who who has an addiction, or you have one, and maybe you think, you know, I've had this for so long. I think it's too late. Or maybe you think that you could never ask for help because what would that mean? What would you give up? What would it cost you? And maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm doing okay. Maybe I can still do okay. And I don't have to give this up. I just need to do it myself. I want to leave you with this word. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to personalize it to this topic. It's Romans 8, 38, 39. I know it's very familiar to you, but I'm going to personalize it to this story and see if it brings into perspective how much hope I want you to have. If you're listening and you're having those thoughts and you're not really sure if you can even be helped because it's been so long. Romans 8.38 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither addiction to shopping, drugs, internet, gambling, pornography, no addiction, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other addiction in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God is for you. He's right here. Just stand up and ask for help. Thank you. Thank you very much, Yolanda. A wonderful, helpful uh, presentation as we begin this evening. And, and I just want to mention I was moving pretty quickly through uh, the introduction so that we can have ample time this evening for discussion. I have a number of cards here. I didn't quite mention, but when you raised the card, the three by five card, that meant that you can write a question. Please feel free again to uh, write a question if you have it. Just hold it up in the air. Uh, someone will come by and uh, bring that to me. And then at some point, if you would like to interact with the panel verbally, you would like to voice something or ask a question or make a statement, please feel free to do so. All you need to do is raise your hand without the three by five card and one of our hosts will bring a microphone to you. Let's talk about one of these questions. Let's dive right in if we may uh, with this. The question is, I live in a house where the TV is always on. I know I can watch four hours straight with no effort whatsoever. You're probably aware the stats show about 7.5 hours per day that a TV is on in America. Uh, that, keeps, that, that also includes uh, people who have their TV on all the time as a friend. But that's a, that's a significant amount of time in a home. But I know I can watch four hours straight with no effort whatsoever. I do it to fill my need to be, quote, off completely. 
I can distract myself by doing other things, but if the TV is on, I naturally look at it from time to time. How do I know if I need to tell my family, quote, no TV, unquote? What do you think about it? A very practical question to begin with. Do you understand the question? This person distracts him or herself with the TV. This is not too uncommon. And what should we do? Well, yeah. I could relate a little bit to the off, turning yourself off by turning the TV on. That sometimes have been, has been my form of escape. That The remote, you're in control. Ooh, yes. it's a real controller. <laughs> Just um, true. But true. I can relate to that. I think what, um, what the TV does is it avoids relationship. You avoid intimacy. You avoid conflict. It's on. It's the thing that runs you know, behind you. And, of course, then you can't hear the person you're talking to. Um, but I think you need to have that discussion with whoever is the other people in your house to decide, you know, let's turn it off during dinner. Let's not have it on. I mean, if you want to agree on you're going to watch something together as something that you enjoy, I think for the purpose of what you want TV to do is entertain you or give you information, but I think that whenever you find yourself using it as avoiding relationships or numbing yourself, you know, I come home after work, it's 9 o'clock, I want to watch something, and I'm flipping for 20 minutes, and finally I say to myself, this isn't working, I gotta go do whatever I need to do and go talk to somebody. But I know that it can be a, and I've had to acknowledge my own addiction to TV mm. as, as well, it's not four hours, but it's, it's over the top. Um, but I think you have to acknowledge the, that it does avoid relationships with, in, in intimacy with the people that you live with. Um, and I think you just need to work on that and really pray about it, that you're going to say, you know what, this is interrupting, and again, it's, it's interfering with my life and how I function. Thank you. It's mesmerizing. And so it's really the same process that people experience sitting in front of a, um, a video game or the, what do they call them things in the gambling hall? Uh, <laughs> One-handed bandit? Or yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same process because it's mesmerizing, it's hypnotizing, and so what it's doing is it's really helping you to numb out certain feelings. Mm -hmm. And so the real question is, is to begin to look at, you know, what am I experiencing if I actually turn this thing off? And then that's the starting point. What are the underlining feelings that are going on that you're actually trying to numb out? Okay. Yeah. Again, I think, Yolanda, you just said uh, something that might distract us. Um, it's almost that we can't give it up if nothing else can help. And we may tend to, I think it was a very interesting statement from the book, seek perfection in human relationships when actually we're seeking perfection in God. Isn't that what you were saying? Yes. Which is the definition of uh, dependency or addiction is a pathological relationship with a mood-altering substance or process. And so that process can be anything across the board, but it's that you know, uh, disordered relationship that you're actually having with that process or with that substance that takes place. And so that's really more of a love affair you know, that you're having with the mood-altering process or substance. And so, you know, that, that's what needs to be interrupted. So it's going back to the idea of uh, somewhat of control. I think, Pam, you had mentioned that, that some of it is trying to regain some kind of control that we've lost somewhere. And if I can somehow have control, does my anxiety come down, or is that a pseudo decrease of anxiety? What do you think? Just about every decision <laughs> we make, you know, we're faced with one of two anxieties. You know, which we call a double bind. 
you know, if I turn it off, I'm going to feel anxiety if I leave it on. Or if I use, I'm ultimately going to feel, you know, anxiety of the, as a result of having used the guilt that goes along with that, because that's what really guilt is, is this fear of being found out. And so, either way you go, you're going to experience some anxiety. So it's really about, you know, making the decision. One anxiety is going to lead you to freedom, one's going to keep you trapped. And really just making that decision, which one's going to lead me to freedom. But either way you go, you're going to feel some anxiety. Um, I think that all addiction is an addiction to avoiding pain. Mm -hmm. And I think that being human is facing suffering and pain on a daily basis. And when you do, it causes you to mature and learn. And the best thing it does, it causes you to rely on Christ and mature spiritually. So I think we need to learn how to teach each other to embrace pain, to welcome conflict, and to work things through yourself as an individual and in your relationship with the Lord as well as your loved ones in the family. And then we will have the kind of intimacy and support that we're looking for. Okay, talk to us about how to embrace this pain. I think it's a very, very perfect uh, baseline from which we can work this evening. Talk to us as a panel and Dr. Schwarzman, if you want to lead us, but how do we embrace it? You talked about on a daily basis, managing conflict, various things. Let's make it real practical. Well, one of the things that taught me to embrace pain is I realized in my own therapy when I was in graduate school that when you have a good hard cry or you get really angry and you process it out by maybe kicking on your bed or ripping up paper or punching a punching bag or having a good talk with someone, that the end result is a tremendous relief. And with that relief, you start feeling like you're valuable mm -hmm. and you develop self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things we teach at the university. The way an, a child experiences the fact that they're valuable is if a parent is willing to suffer along with them when they have conflict and pain in their life. Well, you can do that with yourself. If you're willing to suffer along with yourself, you're going to create more value and more self-esteem. Okay, how do you suffer along with yourself? How do we do that? Um, you can do it through journaling, journaling yes. your pain and accepting it and, and uh, reading it in the scripture, how Christ experienced all forms of pain mm -hmm. and uh, suffered it and embraced it and, and moved through it. Um, you can do it by bodily exercise. Um, that's one of my expertises is learning how your body is the outer manifestation of your personality. You can, um, the first thing that you have to do, I have to back up, is you have to breathe. Most people, when they feel pain and they don't want to accept it, they, they, they breathe in a very shallow manner and not have much exhale at all. If you start to exhale, it'll bring your anxiety down about having pain, and then you can start accepting it and realizing what it is. But if nothing else, you can do hard physical exercise as you're acknowledging to yourself what your conflict is and what the painful thing is, and all of a sudden, it does not become so threatening, it becomes energizing. So we could sing the scriptures, uh, we could sing hymns, we could read right. the psalms, uh, even stand up and read them aloud to ourselves, uh, because it's, it's speaking God's truth it's right into idea. us. What are, any other ways? One of the first things you have to do with pain is to, how do you say, ow, this hurts. So to recognize it. Recognizing and accepting that, yeah, it does hurt. A lot, I ask a lot of my clients, how do you say, ouch? And most of the time they don't even know. They really don't. <laughs> and so the first step is really acknowledging this is going to hurt. One of the biggest pains of any addiction, the real hurt in it, is the intense loneliness. 
That is the biggest pain in addiction. Mm-hmm. When you're in really, really bad pain, the only thing you really want to know is that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that all drug addicts relate to. You know, that was one of the hardest things for me to make the decision to embrace was the intense isolation and loneliness that I felt when I stopped using. And to say, you know what, this is going to be here for a while. I need to take hold of myself, and no matter what I do, I am not going to use. If I have to sit on my hands, I am not going to use. And know that that loneliness was there. But what really makes the difference is to know that you're not the only person that is experiencing that. I started, you know, getting into AA and hearing that, you know, how many other people would express, it's the loneliness that's killing me. We're sitting in a room full of people but feel absolutely, totally alone. That's the pain of addiction. For the you know for the most part you know and then you have the shame and you know because shame is the underpinning drive of all addictions, you know but the loneliness is at the very top. Okay, now let's stop there for a moment because there are many people here who are not facing addiction, but they may have someone with whom they love and care for and want to help. You're saying that aloneness. Why is the person feeling so alone? Let's be real practical here. The very first step of psychological development is trust. Mm-hmm. Trust is what gives us the ability to bond, to have those secure attachments with one another. And it's through that trusting, those secure attachments and that bonding that we're able to give and receive love. The first, you know, spiritual developmental block is the ability to love. Mm -hmm. You know, we have love, joy, peace, patience, well, you know. And so, you know, that is blocked when you, you have no trust. What addicts experience, for the most part, is their trust has been so violated they become you know, walled off, not capable of having that bonding experience mm-hmm. to give and receive that love. And as a result, there's this tremendous sense of isolation and loneliness that takes place. And of course, that being the number one building block of psychological development, all the rest of the you know, developmental blocks just get wobbly and you know, they just don't, you know, it, 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 they don't develop. As well as the spiritual you know, building blocks you can't have any joy in your life if you don't feel loved and not able to give and receive love. That's why it is so important for addicts of any sort to be in a group, to be able to interact, to hold each other, to talk about that with one another. Don't, trying to recover alone is insane. Okay, let's, let's, uh, let's back it off for just a moment, the addict in a hospital, and let's move back into our home with the, uh, the remote, if we can. That might fit a little more, some of us here with this. So we're talking about uh, feeling alone or insecurity. Aloneness or insecurity then breeds compensatory behavior. Then compensatory behavior, when you do that particular behavior, leads to insecurity. And that it just continues to feed on itself. So I'm sitting at home with my clicker or whatever, if you have two or three or whatever, they're going all at once. And I'm doing a compensatory behavior. When I get done, you're suggesting that I may well feel alone or insecure. And I thought, well, it would have been better if I would have, I came home at nine, let's use your illustration if we can, Pam, came home at nine, and then I would find myself reading scripture. 
but it doesn't seem to speak to me, so I turn the TV on, but yet I feel much more alone. How would you speak to that person? What would you suggest from a spiritual standpoint related to this compensatory, I'm using that word, kind of a compensatory behavior that drives it once again into an insecure, alone place? Well, kind of a compensatory behavior would mean that I'm, I'm driving. It, it solves some kind of problem for me. Then it leads me back to the aloneness. I think you're talking about the isolation that a person feels, whether what kind, whatever kind of addiction they're in. Because I think um, one of the things I think that is... I've got a quote that says, secrets are a breeding ground for addictions or, or a fertile ground for addiction so that if there's secrets somewhere about, you know, past growing up or, yeah, you're only as sick as your secrets, right? Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. I think that aloneness of that you feel stuck in it and that you feel like, okay, I can go and journal or I can go and pray or I can go read in scripture because that requires something of you where the TV is just instant. And that's the thing about any addiction is it's instant. Usually food is instant. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so we're looking for something that's going to require more of us to engage in the process of, okay, I feel alone right now. If I read a scripture that says nothing can separate me from the love of God, or if I feel, again, my spouse is in the other room, but he's doing something else. But if I go and attempt to engage in a conversation and express my feelings that, wow, I had a really tough day, you know, that requires something of me. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like talking. I've talked all day or I've listened all day and I'm like, I'm, I'm turning it off. Mm -hmm. But if I just check in and make an attempt of an effort that requires, again, an effort on my part to go engage in an activity that will give me some sense of security rather than turning my emotions off, it's just going to require more of us. And I have those available as a menu. I'm going to read yes. tonight. I'm going to go find a, an inspirational uh, blog or something on the internet. I'm going to have a book right there instead of the remote. You know, I think it requires us to engage in some other process besides the instant remote, instant gratification that we get. Outstanding. Anyone else? That's very practical and I think it very helpful. To even plan to have, say, the books around us are easily accessible. Uh, or uh, thinking through that I'm going to take the inertia to reach out in relationship. Yes. Okay, let's move on to some other questions, if we may. If you are an addict, does that mean God or Jesus is not Lord of your life? Therefore, will you not go to heaven? That's the question. If you are an addict, does that mean that God is not Lord of your life? Therefore, will you not go to heaven? <laughs> I understand. My Bible says, you know, if you, you know, believe in Jesus and you accept him as your Lord and Savior, you know, that's the way to get there. Mm -hmm. Okay. What do you think? I think if you're asking is, if a person is an addict, there's an area of that person's life that God is not Lord over. You are. You're the God over that. And that you are... Another word for addiction is slavery, slavery to an idol, because you've given up your freedom. So in that particular area, all that issue, all that it is, you are serving another god with a small g, or that person is serving another god with a small g. And 
it's a process of allowing God to be Lord over all the areas of your life because he wants all of you, not parts of you. So I think that that's an ongoing process of trust and belief and faith and knowing that if you give it up, you're not losing what you think you're losing. You're gaining more of who you are. But that's a process. So to me, the salvation, yes, I believe Gary is right on. That's when you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That is supposed to be the way we all go to heaven. But the separate issue of the addiction, someone else is Lord of that area. So it kind of goes back to what God said, have no other idols before me. So when we have idols or when we have addictions, we actually are worshiping those addictions or we're worshiping something other than God. And if that's the case, then the devil is doing his job well. He's isolating us from God. And isolation leaves us back to loneliness because that's disconnect. And disconnect leads us to high fear, high anxiety, and this repetition of addiction. Is that correct? So maybe the question might read a little more, what do addictions, what does addiction do to me? Well, it isolates me from God, therefore I really don't have the peace that God promises us because we're isolating from his gift, therefore we're not receiving, much like a healthy person will receive food, and if you're healthy, you would assimilate it, you digest it and assimilate it into your being. And here we're saying, that you're so disconnected that you're in trouble. You're really not living the peace that God has called us. I think I see. That's the part of that thing. That's see. That's what I'm hearing in that is that's shame is the underpinning drive of all addictions. Mm -hmm. Shame is not a feeling. It's an identity. And so again, I'm hearing that you know come through there, even with that question: Am I good enough? Is there something really, am I defective, flawed, fouled? You know, is there something so inherently wrong with me that I can't move forward and even have a relationship with God? That's shame speaking. And every addict I've ever known, you know, has that on board. And they, you know, most of the time people think of shame as I've done something bad and I feel shameful for it. That's not the term that I, the way I'm using that term. The term shame I'm using is it's an identity that someone carries with them that you, somehow you're uniquely bad, you know, different and more bad than anyone else. See, guilt says what I did was bad, what I did was wrong, what I did was a mistake. Shame says I am wrong, I am a mistake, and I am bad. Yes. And that is an excruciatingly painful you know, experience to live with. And so just even in that question, that's a question that's indicating a lot of shame really, you know, operating in that. You're no different than anyone else. <laughs> you know, last I read, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but by the propitiation of Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed to righteousness. Mm -hmm. That pretty much covers all of us. And so, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's dealing with that shame issue, I think, is probably, you know, the place to start. I guess it could be a simple way to look at that is that if you're living in your home and you have a door to your kitchen that has all the wonderful food and elements there that you'd like to partake of, but that door is closed to you, you can't get in, then you, be, yeah, because you're bad, and then you would not enjoy it. This is what the devil wants to do with addiction, I think, is he isolates us, therefore we don't experience God's grace, even though it's rich, full, and free, and always available, but we disown it 
by our own behavior or thinking, as you were just saying. Here's a more uh, difficult question, I think, as we go along. That we have, we have a daughter whose husband is an alcoholic and on pain pills. It's affecting my daughter and granddaughter daily to extremes. What can we do for the safety of our loved ones? Again, let me read the question. Uh, by the way, and if you would like to respond to us with a microphone, please just raise your hand without a card in your hand. We have a daughter whose husband is an alcoholic and on pain pills. It's affecting my daughter and granddaughter daily to extremes. What can we do for the safety of our loved ones? How would you respond to that? Well, the first thing I would do is um, get educated on addiction and... Um, a lot of the hospitals in San Diego have free seminars. I know that Scripps McDonald in La Jolla on Wednesday night has free seminars for all the family members of the addict to help them all get on the same page and understand that what's involved in the addiction and then they will train you for free to do an intervention so you can really take action to get that person the right help. And I, and I think... When it comes to that kind of an addiction, you do need to take action. Just like if somebody was bleeding out of an artery, you wouldn't sit around and discuss, well, gee, what should we do? You would go to an emergency room or take them to a doctor or take the right action. Well, I think the right action is education and intervention. Mm. What you're doing in an intervention is you're separating. You're coming together to, to formulate a plan on how you are actually going to separate that person and cut through the denial of that person of their, you know, of the, what's really going on. The intervention itself is not necessarily to get someone into the hospital, you know. The intervention is to get through the denial. I've done probably 30 interventions, you know, in, in I don't know, in the last 30 years or whatever it's been. And what it really is about is, you know, getting the family, like, which you just said is on the same page because the addiction itself will create massive chaos. People have anxiety, want to blame, you want to, you know, who did what? I remember doing one intervention one time and right in the middle of it, the mother-in-law said, well, I think, you know, you drink a lot because you have a lot of stress at work. And I'm like, would you shut up? Just shut up. Leave the room now. <laughs> you know? You're not being helpful. You know? Because what she just did was enabled him. You know, and right in the middle of the thing, she enabled him to continue to drink. And, you know, and, you know, and that's what goes on. Is that good therapeutic language is to say shut up? Is that what you use in your, your therapy? Yeah, okay. I, I didn't actually say <laughs> okay. I, I, was, I, was, I was thinking that. I was okay. like, how am I going to get her to be quiet now? <laughs> okay. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. The word I heard in the question was safety. And I think that is what you, as a parent of a, a daughter who is in a situation like that, of course you're looking out for their safety. And I would find out if that actually is a physical safety, an mm -hmm. emotional safety, if it's an abusive situation, just to make sure that she has a place to go and she's not in a dangerous situation. Um, so I think certainly for a grandchild and a daughter to be in, a, in a, an abusive situation, you would want them to be removed from that, and that would be your primary concern, to just take them out of the home. Then. Thank you. What would be the steps? What would we do if we were in that? There sounds like there may be someone in that situation. What would be the steps? Well, see, there may be some resistance to that because of the codependency. And what the codependency is, is that if you're living with a drug addict or an addict, you're already involved in that drama. And part of that drama is this constant up and down. 
You know, the drama sends the adrenaline right through the roof. You have the norepinephrine. You have all, you know, all kinds of chemicals that are taking place. So, the, see, the, the codependent is actually participating in the addiction through that process, the ups and downs. Mm -hmm. You know, and then you come down, you have the dopamine, you have all the stuff that, you know, goes on around that because you're in so much pain. And up and down, up and down. And so, a lot of times, the codependent is actually really, this is a real addiction, codependency. They're addicted to that ups and downs. And so, you might, you know, often find real resistance in someone really backing away and letting go and being willing to move out. Yeah, but it's so hard to let go when you, you just really believe that maybe this one last effort will really make a difference. Now again, thank you. This, this is just a fabulous discussion tonight. I'm, I'm just so pleased with what's going on here. I want to ask this question. What are some basic steps, though, to protect children or, or even adult in this type of situation? Tell us some of the practical steps you would tell someone who came in and asked this question. What are the steps? You just get real firm in terms of laying down the, um, the terms. You come in drunk, I'm going to call the cops. Okay. You get abusive, I'm going to call the cops. You put clothes in the trunk of your car, you know, so that you can get to a motel or, you know, you're able to leave so that you don't have to think about that stuff. Somebody comes in drunk, they're, you know, being, you know, violent or abusive verbally or whatever. You don't have to think, I got to pack clothes. You go to your car, you get in, you have the money, you leave. You know, and what that does often see is that that leaves the abuser, the alcoholic, the drug addict, whoever it is, to have to sit there with that, you know, and the feelings that I just drove my family away. But you, you know, have to you know, be willing to step through that. Don't ever threaten an, an addict unless you really are in a place where you are ready to carry it through because an addict will always see the manipulation. They can read you like a book. They know if you're serious and they know if you're not. So if you don't mean it, don't say it. Okay. The other thing is if you're coming in as one of our clients, we are mandated reporters. And we don't have to investigate. We don't have to have snapshots. We don't have to look at bruises. We don't have to look at anything. It's just if there is reasonable suspicion, we are mandated reporters. So if you're coming in to see us, we will make a report. Then the county will come in and they'll do their investigation. But that is what we explain right off the top. If you never have therapy, that is by law what we have to do to protect our clients. Thank you. So that's one step. And what I like to do is sometimes if that person is asking for help and they are, I like to empower them to be able to make the phone call themselves or they can be there while I make the phone call, but I like them to be able to have the empowerment to be able to do that if they want. But that, once you're in therapy, and once you disclose that, that's, that's how things get rolling and on, on that one area. We're not gonna schedule an intervention, but that's how, unfortunately, things get started in the system. And we have no control over what happens after that. Mm -hmm. Thank you, that really answered the question here. I wanna to move to the next one. This is very helpful. How can you let someone know that they have an addiction? She gets very upset if you mention to her eating habits or weight. So how can you let someone know that they have an addiction? Apparently this person is asking this question that of a particular person. She gets very upset if you mention to her eating habits or weight. 
Well, usually when it comes to a, a food addiction or an eating disorder, you really do need to have a formal therapist help you confront that problem, whether it be a physician, an MD, or a psychologist, or, or a counselor, um, because there is tremendous denial. And usually the parent that's the most concerned about the eating disorder is a part of the problem. So both the parent and the person with the eating disorder need to seek professional help. Okay. And why is it? Help give us insight on that. Why is the, the parent or the caregiver closest to that or concerned the most about Because often, especially with anorexia um, and extreme dieting, there's a, a parent that has put a lot of emphasis that the person perform well and be perfect and have really high performance standards. And so the child or the daughter or the son feels very controlled by that. And the only control they feel they have in their life is to be able to control their food intake. So the parent needs to learn how to let go and have faith in that child and talk about food in a completely different manner than how it's been addressed up to that point. Okay. Some other practical steps then, thank you, for how to um, confront, confront an addict. Uh, maybe it's a, a less pervasive issue. Maybe back to the TV issue. I don't know. That seems to be a common one, though. Well, again, it's getting through the denial. <clears throat> Addicts are really, I don't know if you know this or not, but they're really pretty defended. <laughs> okay, what's defended? Tell us what that means. What does it mean to be defended? Uh, the whole system of defense. Um, rationalizing, justifying, blaming, projecting, you know, all the, you know, the defense mechanisms that Freud first enunciated and, you know, talked about. They have all of them, you know, <laughs> anger, you know, is what, and so all that defensiveness coming at you, you don't know if it's rationalizing or justifying or they're projecting or they're going to blame or they're going to get angry or what, what's really going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so to try to, you know, confront an addict dead on individually, <laughs> you're going to lose. <laughs> That's why, gonna, Dr. Yeah. Storstrom, you were saying you really need professional help. You need, well, you need critical mass. You know, and that's okay. what, you know, basically uh, intervention is. It's creating critical mass. <clears throat> you have a whole group. One, you know, I can, you know, as an addict, see, I was able to defend against any individual, maybe two or three at a time. They could come at me all they wanted. Then I'd rationalize, project, blame, you know, get angry, do all this stuff, and I could defend them off. But when the whole group, <laughs> mm -hmm. that was a whole different deal. You know, there was no way to keep them off, you know, and after a period of time, it was like, okay, I surrender, you know, I give up. It's critical mass is what you're looking for. So would we, would we equate a hardened heart, which God really is pained over, a hardened heart as someone who's defended? Are we, are we saying the same thing here? That's why God perhaps really, really is in pain over a hardened heart, because it's difficult to get behind that. Is that what we're saying? Yes, and that's what it means to hit bottom. I don't know if you've heard that saying before, that an addict has okay. to hit bottom, which means to become completely broken and contrite Yes. and say, I give up, the addiction's bigger than me, I turn it over to you, Lord, and I need you every day to turn this addiction or this compulsion over to you. Um, and you get broken and you give up, and that's what hitting bottom means. Okay. See, I don't think it's a hardened heart. Okay. You know, I love addicts, you know, and almost, you know, every addict that I've ever worked with, they're just extremely sensitive people, you know. The same part of the brain that regulates emotional pain regulates physical pain. That's how, you know, and we know that some people have a high tolerance for physical pain. They also have high tolerance for emotional pain. Addicts 
have very low tolerance for both. And so what, the, what you're really dealing with there isn't so much a hardened heart, it's a terrified heart. It's a heart that's just so wounded that you, know, you touch them in any kind of way, what they experience is pain out of that. And so it's, you know, it's not so much a hard heart, it's, it's this, they're just terrified. Okay, so we're back to insecurity. You're, you're describing insecurity, I'm talking about a defendedness, but you're really, you have a real understanding of their sensitivity that, that they have so low self-esteem, low ego mass, they, they don't have a sense of well-being about themselves. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not self-esteem because self-esteem is different than self-worth. It's, it's a low sense of self-worth. Right. See, self-esteem is based on performance. It's what I do in a given day. How's my performance? And like I might tell somebody in a given day is, you know, my self-esteem is pretty high today because, mm -hmm. you know, I haven't done anything incredibly stupid yet. <laughs> you know, go home and, and no see my wife, you, you know. No one's told you to shut up yet. So yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> but see, that's different. And, you know, an, an individual can have, a, because I've treated doctors, you know, I remember treating one doctor one time. And he goes, Gary, you don't get it. There's nothing wrong with my self-esteem. He goes, I'll, you know, anything I set my mind to, I'm pretty sure I'll accomplish. I have no self-worth. All I do is take care of people. That's it. That's my life. That's all I do. And so he was identifying a low sense of self-worth. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and people would talk to him about self-esteem, and it never made sense. And as we you know, worked that out, where it's what the real issue is, he had no sense of self-worth. Okay, so our self-worth goes back to we're not able to receive God's grace because if we were able to see ourselves through God's eyes, we would have tremendous self-worth. So there's, I think we're, we finally came around with that, but a very good discussion. We don't always have to agree, so, and I think you know a little more about this than I do, so I... Uh, it's back to the trust issue. Yeah, it, that makes good sense. Let's look at another question here that how does addictive behavior relate to OC disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders? Okay, how does an addictive behavior relate to o OCD or obsessive compulsive, uh, an obsessive compulsive disorder? Is one a subset of the other and how are symptoms, diagnoses, and treatment related? This is quite a question. Let's start with the first part. The reason people obsess is because they're trying to find a solution. Yes. And until they reach that solution, they're going to continue to, you know, strive to come to a solution. You know, and often there just simply is no solution to certain problems. Why this person did this? Why, why did I have parents that just simply didn't love me? Well, there's no solution to that. Hmm. And so a lot of times the obsession is just this ongoing drive to find that solution. And it's, you know, people are compelled because we want resolution in our life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which goes back to assertiveness in relationship when it's not working well. I think that was mentioned earlier, Diana, when you were mentioning that as well. Also, I think a true clinical diagnosis of OCD is a part of a clinical depression, and it's awfully chemically based, and you do need depressive medication to take care of that. And that doesn't mean that every addict has OCD at all. Um, right. You can be compelled to be obsessive and compulsive and not have the diagnosis of OCD. Yes. Good. And then um, the second part of it is what well, we just mentioned, that one is a subset of the other. We just, you delineated that. And how are symptoms, diagnoses, and treatment related? Well, they were, how does, they were, they were talking about how, how does addictive behavior relate to OCD? And then the, the portion of this question, how are symptoms, diagnoses, and treatment related? I think we talked a little bit about that, didn't we? 
Well, I think what she said is medication yes. can be used to treat OCD, and then again, addiction has a different, I think the OCD feels like that's controlling them, and yes, the addiction feels like it's controlling the person, mm -hmm. but I think there's a different level of brain chemi chemicals that are going on in that too. I'm, I'm not an expert, but I just think you have to treat it. Again, you have to get a good evaluation, a good medication, and a good treatment plan of how you're going to proceed, and again, offer alternatives to the addiction and the OCD behaviors. Okay. This next question, is sexual addiction a real addiction? The question is, is sexual addiction a real addiction? And I'm going to add, tell us a little more about that. Okay, that's the question. When I first, when I first heard of sexual addiction, I was working at Hillside Hospital 30 years ago. <laughs> what is that? The guy just gets laid a lot? I mean, what addiction? You know, <laughs> he's got a real excuse, too, you know? <laughs> Were you a Christian then? I just want to know that. Were you? <laughs> I really never, I was like, what does that mean? Yeah, it is. It, it is definitely a real addiction, you know, because it, it's using, and again, it's using to anesthetize certain feelings, you know, and all the components of an addiction is there with the sex, sexual addict. There's four components to diagnose addiction. You have to have the tolerance, you know, the withdrawal syndrome, you have to have compulsive, you know, the compulsiveness and the obsessiveness to diagnose, you know, addiction. And all those, all those, you know, symptoms, all that criteria is, is present with uh, the sexual addiction. Okay. I'm wondering if that sex addiction is that we, they have, I don't know if this is in the DSM yet, the, a love addict, they have love addict uh, support groups for people who are addicted to love. Hmm. I've not seen it in the DSM, that's, is it? That's a title of a book, I think, by Steve Arterburn, Addicted to Love, which means yeah. more about relationships and the dynamics of being in love rather than sexual addiction, which, again, seems to be appearing more and more just out of, again, what he described. Because clearly, um, in sexual addiction, the person does not experience love, love. Yes. or intimacy. In fact, they're afraid of love and intimacy most often. Yes. Okay. Yeah, there's another book called Out, in, Out of the Woods. I can't remember. Uh, no, Out of the Woods by, um, you know, that's, uh, that's um, Carnes. That talks about, you know, relationship addiction and the highs and the lows in that. What I, you know, personally what I think that, that really is is that individual is addicted to pathological people. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move to another question, if we may, and that is, um, how do I get myself to stop having cravings for my addictive behavior? For, for example, self-mutilization. Um, how do I get myself to stop having cravings to, uh, to my addictive behavior, for example? And I think this person may be referring to cutting. Okay. Well, I've worked with this quite a bit, and I really believe that cutting is anger turned inward. <clears throat> that usually the person is experiencing extreme disappointment and anger towards somebody or something and doesn't feel safe enough or trusting enough to discharge it out and talk about it and confront it. So instead of doing that, it turns into self-hate and then they express that hatred by cutting and doing destructive things. I think the word craving strikes just that that is again a physiological brain chemistry 
ignition kind of signal that goes on. And I think you have to, again, look at all the things that start a craving. You know, if we're watching an advertisement on television about Burger King, okay, there, we get a visual craving. And then we get the craving, to, we, the thought kicks it in even more and it extends it. So now we're thinking about it all the time. So I think you have to look at craving is where do you set up the stop sign or the detour sign that says, I'm not going down that road today. I'm going to set up, again, other sorts of things to deter me from the cravings of the visual or the um, experience that sets it all in motion. You have to set up detours and stop signs because, again, that brain chemistry that gets kicked in is is ready to go down that road with you to do the behavior. So you got to check it out. What what are the thoughts right before that? And, and again, start figuring out what that looks like. Mm -hmm. This next question really ties in a practical way of, of asking how to work with it. And it says, how do I help my child with self-mutilization and depression? What can I do now to help her from not going back and hurting herself? I'm so proud of her being strong and a little more positive. So what are some practical steps that we can do, uh, this person can do, or others, to help someone uh, with an addictive behavior that is very hurting to them? I think to teach that person that anger is normal and necessary um, and to accept those negative feelings and reinforce the person and help her deal with her anger and her negativity and not just say I'm so proud of her because she's positive and she's moving forward but to say I'm proud of you because you're admitting how angry you are and you're being real and to tell her that real is better than perfect. Okay, let's park on the idea of anger for just a moment. It's such an important one, particularly in the church. How do we manage that? And you said that it's, it's a common feeling, and is it okay for us to be angry as Christians? How do we, how do we manage that, if so? And, and what's too much anger? Or maybe too little of anger? We, we don't express ourselves to the full. Talk to us about well, that. Well, I think it's important to focus on that it, it's okay to be angry at behavior. Hmm that you don't need to be angry at the person or a person's selfhood or, or angry at God, but you can be angry like that you feel abandoned by God, you're angry at the behavior of being ignored by God, if you think that's what's going on. Yes. Or you can be angry at your father's behavior of raging at you or, or abandoning you, and it doesn't have to be towards the person. And what happens is I really believe in the polarity theory that you can only be as loving and compassionate and passionate towards another human being as you can be angry and embrace your negativity. You can't have one without the other. That both are necessary for balance, not only in the personality and in the spirituality, but literally in your immune system. That a root cause to a lot of our immune problems today is internalized anger. I also believe that anger is the secondary emotion. I think we bypass what are the primary emotions that really result in the anger. And the first one is from the past. You look at what's the hurt that you have, mm -hmm. the present, what is the frustration you're having, and then the future, what is the fear that you're experiencing. So that anger is, again, all of those things, but it's like... You know, we can go from zero to 60, recognizing what about that hurt and frustration and fear, and then it's, it's already, the anger's already out and it's already being manifest in maybe unhealthy or, uh, you know, destructive ways. Yeah, yeah, but suppose I'm a person that would say, well, I'm listening to what you're saying, it makes sense, except all I've ever experienced is anger from people at me. So how do I, how do I not express my anger uh, at a person? For example, how do I manage the anger without having to project it or push it onto someone? Because that's what I've been used to all my life. 
What do we do? One of the things, I had a client with something similar to that, and one of them is to admit that you actually don't like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is to just, I think that women especially are so used to stifling that feeling inside, and they're so used to having men express that, mm-hmm. that whether they're in the church or out of the, probably in the church more, uh, women tend to stifle that and excuse it and tolerate abuse abusive anger, abusive emotions by other people. It's very hard for them to own their own anger, mm-hmm. own their shock, and own their, uh, you know, more than irritation. It's very hard for them to even think that they could even feel upset. I mean, if we're saying upset. So sometimes I help them use other words besides anger because that's like the A word. You mm-hmm. don't want to use that. So how about brewing how about really upset? Okay, I'm, I'm kind of upset about that. I think they were either raised in a home where it wasn't possible for them to express any emotion or even anger. So it's very difficult just to be able to admit they're feeling this and then to say, this is actually healthy because you're actually being honest. And I think they're so easy. They lie to themselves and they lie to others and they just accept it. And they feel that in some way, this is what God wants them to do. So much of it is just a deception. So letting them know that they have a legitimate need to express how they feel, how they react, we can get down to that later. But um, I feel that women need to own their own feelings and not be afraid to say, yes, I'm really angry at what happened. Because they tolerate, I feel, a lot in the name of what they're supposed to behave like, what is expected of them as caregivers in life and servants in the church. Mm. And uh, mm. just, that, just that doesn't happen. That anger is not permissible. Mm-hmm. It's it's both men and women, you know, that struggle with all of it. You know, I find that men have more trouble accessing grief. Women have an easier time with that. Women have, yeah, you know, and that's generalized. But I find a lot of men really have a hard time with anger as well. I, I remember early recovery that, because that was you know one of my issues. I didn't know how to deal with anger. You know, and anger is the feeling that we experience when we've been violated, or we experience having been violated at some level. But not knowing how to really access that anger, because it's anger is the energy that we have to, you know, sort of have to be able to set the limits and set the boundaries mm-hmm. and to say no. And I remember so many times in my own life where it's like somebody would say something really, you know, injurious or hurtful to me. You know, and I'd go through this whole process if, you know, my self-esteem was a little higher, you know, I'd want to kill them. If my self-esteem was a little lower, I'd want to kill myself, you know, <laughs> and go through this whole process, you know, and that struggle with that whole thing. And the answer, of course, in the middle of all that was learning something about assertiveness, you know, and how I can, you know, utilize that anger to mobilize myself to say, what you did was not okay. And I'm, I'm bringing that to your attention and, you know, beginning to set those back. Because without that, you know, if I'm not willing to really access that anger and that energy that's involved in that, what I'm ultimately then going to end up feeling is a real sense of powerlessness, you know, which just, you know, perpetuates the whole cycle, you know, you know over and over and over. 
You know, this is, goes back to the assertiveness we started with. I think, were you talking about self-worth or self-esteem? Sorry, I just wanted to get back to the, okay, okay. But, yeah, okay, got you. But real quickly with this assertiveness, if I can real quickly, with the assertiveness we're talking about is going back and actually taking that step. If you think about Revelation 3.20 where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice. And the, the concept again is that we open the door and that we're assertive in the sense of inviting. And so when we talk about women versus men, women do experience depression twice as much as men, and it may be for some of the reasons that were shared, not perhaps being given the permission to be more assertive. And men as well, being assertive as well. I know we're gonna need to wind down. We have just a few minutes uh, left. Um, anything else you want to add as we wind down here? I always tease Gary so much when you're here. I don't know why I have this tendency to do that. It's not anger, by the way, but it's just teasing you for some reason. But, but other other thoughts part, you might part, have. Is we part of the cutting thing, by the way, and at least you know the people that I've worked with that been involved in that. What I've understood them to say, and you know, is there's this sense of letting the pressure out, you know, bleeding it out. And what I always do is I work with people involved in that. Is What's the pressure? What, what is that pressure? And usually it comes back to you know, anger or a lot of poison. You know, and I talk about poison, people get poisoned and they feel that inside. And there's this urge to want to cut to get that out somehow. Mm -hmm. It's like bleeding, you know? <laughs> and so it's that whole process. And so it's really identifying what exactly is that poison that you're trying to get out. You know, and, that, and that's been pretty successful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Bible tells us that God will, will speak to us if we will listen. And uh, Paul saying to young Timothy, have a conscience that accuses you. He will talk to us in the midst of all of this. Well, thank you very much. Would you please join me in thanking our panel this evening? A wonderful, wonderful discussion. Uh, in just a moment, we are going to have a word of prayer, but I would like to mention that each of these therapists, they have their own, uh, each has their own practices, and their cards are on the very back table, and this is a wonderful way that I can invite therapists to be here, because this is a great venue in which people may be looking for a therapist. And if you'll notice up on the, the, the screen, we do have actually um, an event coming up, and that is Dr. Schwarstrom. Dr. Diana Schwarstrom, just opposite me here on the front, is developing small groups. Um, as you know, uh, Yolanda just began a group that began this last week, I believe. Um, and these groups are going to be recovery group for addictions, codependency and addictions, support group for women. These will be held at our Mission Valley office at a later determined time. However, I believe that it's only gonna be 25 per person per session. Remarkable, okay. You went much lower than I thought we went, and I, that's terrific, that's fantastic. The motivation behind that is the economy, and I would just wanted to provide an experience that everyone can afford, and it, and it reflects what we're doing at Point Loma Nazarene University, as I've been running small groups there, and I've really been finding that the group experience creates the self-esteem, the self-acceptance, the self-worth, and if you can get that high enough in individuals, people will automatically have the insight and be able to implement that and make the changes and growth that they're trying to find. 
and I just wanted to be able to offer that. So. Yeah, she is a sterling professor. I actually have the privilege of sharing an office with you, Dr. Shorstrom, but uh, up at the college that she, she leads these groups and they carve out these groups just for her. And I know that to be true. And she knows how to do small groups in a wonderful way. So we really appreciate your willingness to offer this. We do have sign-up sheets in the very back on the table. If you would be interested, you would just leave your name, phone number, or email, and we will contact you about when that will happen and how you can become involved in that. So anything else about that? Are we okay? Thank you. And then I also wanted to mention, if we can, that our next My Therapist Says Tips for Managing Without Enough Money will be Wednesday, November 3rd. Um, we're, we're privileged to have um, all four of these individuals coming to work with us. You, you know many of these people, in particular related to the managing of money. We do have two therapists that will help us with the emotional, relational issues. Um, and that is Donna Dennis, who is a member, uh, she and her husband, uh, part of our Marriage Savers ministry here for years. Also, Lucretia Lee, who is a wonderful person, a great therapist, who will be joining us. But also, John Richardson and Jerry Troyer, both of whom were with us at the beginning of the year. They have both agreed to come back. Jerry will be leading that event. He has a nonprofit uh, ministry that helps with financial issues. He was for 22 years in the banking industry in uh, strong leadership roles. And we're privileged to have this, this next uh, session. And I think if you have friends that would like to come, it's a good way to meet these two individuals who may be able to help you off-site even after uh, these sessions. So we welcome you to the next My Therapist Says. Thank you so much. Let's have a word of prayer and then you will be dismissed. Thank you again for coming this evening. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you, Father, that you are the one who knows most about addictions. You've promised that you would set us free. And when we are free, we're free indeed because we have the grace of God himself in filling us, strengthening us, a peace that the world does not give, one that comes only from you. And there is an innate DNA part of us that seeks for God. We want to know your peace. We want to know you. And so we pray as we've met this evening that we would sense as we leave your even more divine grace that's available to us. In the name of Jesus, we praise you for your presence. In your precious name we pray. Amen. God bless, and you are dismissed.